I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a podcast devoted to thinking. Uh, and that thinking takes pretty much every form and shape when it comes to theology. We love to talk about theology and use all sorts of tools to think about it, whether that's philosophy, science, or otherwise. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And this is part three of our discussion on Sam Renahan's book on covenant theology. So the first two episodes, we spent the first one just talking about what is a covenant, what are the interpretive methods that we need to use to understand how covenants work. The second one, we were talking about the covenant at creation with Adam, and then the covenant uh, with Noah. And now in part three, we're going to be discussing the co- the kingdom of Israel, which for Renahan encompasses the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the Davidic covenant. So we'll be talking a little bit about what are these covenants, and then just kind of kicking it around, talking about things that are interesting, talking about things that maybe we didn't like or we liked, and think are really, really important. So I think this should be fun. As a reminder, it's not just me and Brandon here. It's We've got our friend Morgan Bird, who's a pastor down in South Carolina with us to talk about this topic. And he did an episode with us previously on Abraham Booth. If you haven't listened to that, we think you should go check it out. And as a reminder, if you're just jumping into part three because you're interested in this, uh, reminder, we did an interview with Sam Renahan on covenant theology, and it was like 75 minutes long, uh, full of covenant theology red meat. Uh, go feast y- yourself on that one before you re- listen to this one. I think it's a good introductory, uh, laying out the land, uh, getting his own perspective from the guy who wrote the book that we've <laughs> used as a launching pad. So let's go ahead and get started then. On this, uh, the first covenant that we come to in, in, this, in this section is the Abrahamic covenant. So I don't know if someone wants to give a definition or if someone wants to talk about where in the Bible it is. I mean, it's, um, well, I guess. We'll, so we'll, we'll start in Genesis 12, um, where God initiates this covenant with Abraham. And um, I'm just going to I'm just going to read. So Renahan has a, a block quote here from Genesis chapter 12. I'm just going to read that kind of. Set the table for us. So uh, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed to the land, to the place at Shechem, uh, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So um, maybe we could start with um, the three things that Sam says we should note. And that is, one, that Abraham is appointed a federal head. That um, if uh, you are one of the descendants of um, of Abraham, the second thing is you're going to inherit, uh, well, I guess, the descendants of, of Abraham will inherit the land of Canaan. And the third thing is, is that um, out of this line from Abraham will come the blessing for the nations, which um, ties into this mystery of Christ and actually ties back into the promised seed um, of the woman that was given the promise in Genesis 3.15. So that's the beginning of and then the initiation of the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Is there anything we think we should add before we move to 15? 
Well, I would just say I think it um, it's a helpful reminder, kind of thinking back to the Noahic Covenant, how uh, Renahan basically says that uh, one of the major purposes of the Noahic Covenant was to stabilize the earth so that God could bring forth salvation through the Messiah. And now, as in the Abrahamic Covenant, um, it's different but similar, where he's arguing that uh, now the, the Abrahamic Covenant exists to bring forth that Messiah. It's the family that's been narrowed down, you know, to bring forth the Messiah. So, we, we see that he is trying to create continuity between um, the new covenant and these other covenants. And one of the ways he's doing it is by showing how these covenants um, played into the historical uh, revelation or redemption uh, narrative. And so I think we see that already in Genesis 12. Yeah. All right. So then Genesis 15, um, this is where the the confirmation of the covenant comes in. If 12 was the initiation, then 15 um, is the confirmation, and um, so I won't I won't read all of this, but um, so this is uh, a story that probably most of you um, are familiar with, where um, God tell Abraham is basically you know he wants to know how this promise is is going to come true, and then God um, he tells him to bring the the animals and the birds, and um, he lines them up and. Makes two rows, and then basically God um, causes Abraham to, to fall asleep. And then um, God, in the form of um, a pot, he, he goes, so this is a theophany, he, he, he goes, passes between those carcasses. And basically the message is, if I do not fulfill my promise, may it be to me as it is um, to these animals that have been killed here. So that is... Um, the confirmation of the covenant is God's way of telling Abraham that you can count on this promise uh, that I've given you. Yeah. And I think in that sense, you know, if we remember what a covenant is, that it's this um, kind of contract between two people uh, and that there are sanctions (laughs) that come about if it's not met. I mean, for God to put himself in this humble position and, and essentially say, you know, I'll take the sanctions upon myself. Yeah is just really, I think it's, this, in my opinion, is the most gracious moment in the Old Testament, you know, where you see God making this promise and, um, you know, just humbling himself to to put himself at um, at risk, in, in a sense, uh, if, if, if he doesn't keep his own promises. It just, it just screams grace. It just screams um, God fulfilling his promises no matter what. And so Renahan says, you know, God will multiply Abraham's offspring and he will give them the land of Canaan. Genesis 12 and 15 constitute a complete covenant by definition, but the Abrahamic covenant was not yet complete. Genesis 17 expands the commitments of the covenant. So before we go into chapter 17, which I think is where it's going to get, um, maybe some disagreements going to arise. Do we have anything else? that we think we need to add to make sure we have everything in place to have that discussion? Yeah, there's two things. Number one, if you're listening, apparently I sit between Brandon, who thinks God is a pot, and Morgan, who thinks God can take risks. I affirm neither of those. I said it was a theophany. <laughs> I mean, I think I said, and something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, secondly, actually, substantially, there is disagreement in the literature out there on how many covenants are made with Abraham. And I guess we, we might end up getting to this with Genesis 17, because even some Baptists, I think, do this, where they say that there are two distinct covenants made with Abraham. There's one in in 
I guess, Genesis 12 and then one in Genesis 17 that are distinct. Uh, I can't remember who does it. So I think I'm, I'm not, I haven't read much of Nehemiah Cox, but I think that the, 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 the debate is whether, whether he sees there, there's actually two covenants or, and maybe there's some more modern theologians who said there's two covenants, but then is he saying there are actually two covenants or, or there's one covenant with like a dual, a dual nature to yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. No. And that, that's fair. I, there are contemporary people who aren't trying to do Baptist covenant theology who legit just say they are two covenants yeah. and they've got their own reasons for it. I think we all three affirm that there's just one Abrahamic covenant. Now, how how Brandon mentioned it, there's like, what, a dual aspect potentially? Maybe Brandon agrees or Morgan agrees. I don't know. Um, we can talk about that, I guess. Well, I think I think we're, the, probably the reason that there's tension is because, like I just said, I mean, up to this point, it seems so gracious. It seems like God is, it is, it is, it, it does appear to be a covenant of grace that God is saying, I'm going to do this no matter what. And then... It's it's almost as if he comes back and says, but hey, there are some things that you need to do. And if you don't do them, you're going to be disinherited. You're going to be cut off. And so and we, it, we just talked about earlier that you can add laws to a covenant of grace. What are you doing? Yeah, but you can add laws. But when you add sanctions to those laws, then it then it takes on it. It changes the it doesn't change the nature of the covenant. But it, I think it uh, it sets the context for the covenant. So okay. then what do I do with Hebrews six? And where it's talking about you'll be cut <laughs> off from the covenant, the new covenant. Isn't that the same thing? I don't. I don't know, man. I don't. I'm, I'm putting not, you on the spot, but that's just because I want no, to. Well, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think it's the same thing. And I think that what the, I think the way Renahan interprets this is that he's going to say that nationally this is a covenant of grace. That nationally the promises that God are making to Israel will come about no matter what. No. But individually, it is a. It takes on a character the character of works in other words um you must do this and and that's where and we'll talk about this later when we get to the new covenant there are some people that talk about the new covenant as a covenant of works for that very reason because there is a stipulation for being included it's not just because just because you're born after jesus was resurrected doesn't mean you're automatically saved so i think there's a sense in which the way he works it out is that the national the, the national promises are promises of grace, but at, but when it comes to the individual promise, it's it is a covenant of works. Yeah, he does say, and I found that really interesting. I don't remember reading that among a lot of other people. I, I've read a lot of covenant theology. It's not the thing that I read very frequently anymore, so I'm not up on all the cool contemporary covenant theology debates. But I thought that was a unique thing that I don't remember reading from other people, making this distinction of national versus individual when it comes to Abraham. Yep. And he said, so So Genesis 17 verse verse 14 says, um, any uncircumcised male who is, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then Renahan says um, that Genesis 17, 14 uses the language of cutting off very specifically and intentionally. The one who does not cut off his foreskin will be cut off from the covenant. Circumcision was thus a promise of blessings and a threat of curses at the same time. And I think that's the point you're making, that it's not just that that God has given this this positive this positive law. It's 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 that this this positive law is given as a sanction. And he's saying yeah. that if you don't do this, 
then there is going to be um, a curse to you. Here's the thing, though. I feel like that's the exact same thing with baptism. Uh, that's what church discipline is, is cutting off uh, this formerly covenant community member from the covenant community. You are putting them from this sphere of righteousness into the sphere of Satan. Mm-hmm. I, I just I feel like it's the same thing. Baptism, I think, is a double-edged sword. If you truly believe and have faith, it's a promise of blessing. And if you don't, it's a curse, just like the table. I think that that's super clear in the table, where if you take this in an unworthy manner, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Which is which to me would seems precisely why, and not to make this as a polemic against pedo-baptism, but that's why it doesn't seem to me that God's design... Like the the way it should be is is for us to expect there to be people who have been baptized that that we would expect them like it's just normal part of God's design that they are going to not be um, one of the elect like you know what I'm saying because it it removes the teeth from from the 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 like if you take take this sign um, yourself baptism then you are claiming to be part of this group of people and then if you you don't live up to that yeah. then you are you are sent away well that, that just doesn't seem to map on right when you when it's part of the design that you you've already expect there to just be this external group of people who we really don't know if they're gonna well and i think i think one of the things that's key too uh, jordan is um remembering and this is why we spent a whole episode talking about uh you know um definitions and things like that when we talk about typology, we have to remember that it there is escalation, but that there's also other, and that one of the things that's key, I think, about um, you know this both the Abrahamic and then now Renahan is going to tie it in to the Mosaic and the Davidic, and and I, and I don't I don't want to jump too far ahead, but part of the disinheritance isn't just about being cut off from the people; it's about the land; it's about yeah. being exiled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's where. There, yes, there is a typological um, solidarity uh, between what happens with the new the new covenant, but I think it's different because now in the new covenant we're not talking about being cut off from a land. We're not talking about losing our inheritance. Um, I, th- I think there's something different, slightly different going on there. He, he says on page ninety seven, and I think this is where it's almost like, and, and this is what actually you know doing a little bit of study on it. I think this is what the Baptist covenant theologians of the 17th century did. They saw what some had done with the Mosaic covenant, and then they took that and then they backed that into the Abrahamic covenant. I believe that when you guys did your episode with with Sam, he talked about that. So he says on 97, um, trying to show the connection between these three covenants. As a covenantal foundation, we find that in scriptures, subsequent covenants are made with the same parties, Abraham's offspring, in the same kingdom realm, Canaan with the same promises, blessed life in Canaan, with the same precepts, positive laws. Uh, um, And then he says, and the same penalties, disinheritance. Therefore, what is commonly known as the old covenant began with Abraham. And so he's making this argument that if it's uh, it's the same people, the same kingdom, the same promises, uh, the same positive laws, and the same penalties, that it gives warrant to read back from the Mosaic Covenant into the Abrahamic Covenant and to see that there, even in the Mosaic Covenant, there is graciousness. You know, there is a sense of, um, you know, God brings them out of Exodus and then gives yep. them law, which I know so many uh, people point to that as that sort of um, indicative imperative. You know, you've got God saving first and then giving the commands, but there's there's clearly consequences in a different way than, um, and, and I think if you go that route, 
then when you get to the when you get to the new covenant, you almost you almost undercut your doctrine of perseverance. You, know, you almost mm-hmm. undercut uh, your doctrine, you know, of of God's. Of you undercut the graciousness of the covenant of grace in, yeah. in some sense. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, let's talk about it. I mean, I feel like it's the same thing, old or new. If the spirit regenerates you, you don't fall away. Um, and if he didn't regenerate you, you're externally part of the covenant community, but not truly there. So you're going to fall away at some point probably and be cut off. I, I don't know. I don't think it cuts off my perseverance. I think the spirit does the same, you know, keeps them. I, I don't know. So how does that relate to baptism? I mean, unpack that. Like, what is that? So that's, that's where I get hung up is like, now I know obviously you're a Baptist. So, but so unpack for me, your understanding of external and internal and baptism versus like a, a, a pedo Baptist understanding of external and internal and their view of baptism. I mean, I, I don't think mine really functionally differs in any way. I don't think the second London really differs either. The second London affirms a mixed uh, community in the new, new covenant. There are people who don't believe who are in the new covenant community in an external sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I would use the same language where a lot of Presbyterians will say they're members of the covenant of grace I, I don't go down that path because I think the federal head of the covenant of grace is Jesus Christ himself. And if you uh, have him as your federal head, you're a believer. The, right. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. So, but I do think that there is, in practice, like in the real world of time and space, there is a covenant community that is a mixed body. You go to your local church, you go to my local church, you go to Morgan's local church, you walk in there. I promise you there are people there who are members of your church who are not Christian. Yeah. I don't think that's the debate. The debate is like whether that's the design or not, uh, like yeah, whether yeah. that's got like, is right. that the way that God like made the floor plan for well, the New Testament church? See, and I, I don't, don't think so. Like, I don't think a Presbyterian would even would just say, yeah, I'm intentionally trying to create a mixed community. I don't see how they can avoid that. I, so it's, they, I mean, they're the same way. If, if an adult comes to them, they have to be a believer to become a member. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the difference is with the children and, and the way, depending on who you talk to, um, it's a, the children are included with a, an expectation and hope. And once they reach an age of accountability <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> uh, confirmation, what have you, that's when they become responsible uh, for their own decisions, and then it's uh, you get cut off if you're not truly a believer. So they are, they are. Um, let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. They are in, still in Adam, but but they are also in some way they are in the new covenant. I don't think that. Well, it. it I guess it really depends on who you talk to. Yeah. Um, some are just going to like, there are people who are like federal vision who are just, yeah, they're, they are truly in every sense of the word in the covenant. Yeah. Um, people who want to practice pedo communion, I think want to do it for that particular reason. Mm-hmm. But I don't think everybody would want go down that route. There, there are plenty who would just say they are members of this visible body of believers, but they're not actually members of the covenant of grace until they believe. So I, I think it depends. Okay. Yeah, it's well, messy. I I, 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 well, I get it. It's messy. No, but what I was gonna say is, um, in the next episode, I mean, he spends time in the book talking about church discipline. He spends time yeah. talking about baptism, and, and I think we're gonna get there. And I know why you're pushing the conversation here, but I think because it all comes back down what, to the Abrahamic in a lot of senses. It, yeah, it does. And but I think what what he's presenting his his mm. 
view, Renahan's view, is that um, the Abrahamic covenant has a um, an aspect of it that is a covenant of grace and an aspect of it of it that is a covenant of works, and that the the gracious aspect, and this, but this is the key: the gracious aspect isn't about salvation. It's about bringing forth the one who, who would give salvation. salvation. Yeah. So, so, so for him, it's the, the, so. Then the covenantal right. formula: I will be a god to you, to you, and, and and your people. What is that? Is that not about salvation? I think. I think no. Yeah, I, I think I, I, Yeah, exactly. And, and it is in in that sense he chose Israel for that special purpose. Mm-hmm. He created this kingdom. He called a people. Uh, and he, and he called them. And I mean, it's an awesome purpose. Like they got to, they got to bring, they got to bring forth. And and it's like when Paul get, I mean, that is the question when you get to Paul is if all of this was for nothing, then like, what was the point? And he says that, you know, they had the covenants, they had the promises, you know, they have the patriarchs, you know? And so he makes that, that argument. It's like, it wasn't worthless, but it also wasn't salvation. Yeah. I mean, coming again to the national individual distinction that he makes, Mm -hmm. I I do think, I I don't know how you get around if you're a Presbyterian or otherwise this promise that I will be a God to you and your children and the reality that he's not a God to all of your children. Like I, I've never met a single Presbyterian who said, yep, all of my children are Christians across the board, no matter what, if, if you're born, if I'm, if your parents are Christians, your children will automatically be Christians guaranteed promised. Yeah. So they, they don't truly believe what they say they believe. Uh, And I, I mean, sure. Maybe there's some sophisticated reason why you can come up with an explanation for it, but I, you've got to understand that promise in a different way than just flat footed. This is exactly what it means in all cases. Yeah. And and take that as a universal continued promise old to new that if you're a Christian, your children will be Christians. That's just empirical evidence alone invalidates that. Yeah. So, and and I, I think what, I mean, I think essentially they just embrace a mixed church. I mean, that's, that's that. And that's, that has been. That's why one of the Baptist distinctives is regenerate church membership. Yeah, yeah but then, I mean, you, you obviously come into the whole. You know, you need your regeneration goggles or whatever. But I don't think. Again, I don't think the claim is that we, we, we know infallibly who who yeah. is regenerate. Yeah. I think the 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 claim is that when we look at the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah thirty one, and we look at the New Testament, it just. I mean, I don't want to like be dismissive, but it just seems fairly obvious that the expectation is that for one to be a member of that covenant, they are born again. Yeah, no, I, I and, agree. And to to mix that up, I, I don't know. I, 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 it's just never. Like, I I know I and I I know I'm gonna sound, <laughs> but like I, I I talk to all these Baptists and like Jordan. We've had this conversation, who have like you know become Calvinists and 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 have you know dip their toe into, you know, reformed theology. And then they start, you know, reading all these Presbyterians and it becomes like this, like inner struggle of like, Oh, like, I don't know if I should become a Presbyterian. Like that just never was a thing for me because it just seems, I mean, call me a biblicist. I don't know, but it, it just seems foreign to the newness of the new covenant. Like I I just, there's something more new about the new covenant than, than I think they want to give it. I don't know. And and I think like you know he talks he uses Moses as a as a case study and I think Moses presents such an interesting person who on the one hand we know he's a believer we know he's regenerate 
Um, his people, the people that he led in the wilderness forever, they actually get to go in the land, but Moses himself doesn't get to go in the land. And so it's like in some sense, there had to be some, his disobedience got in the way of receiving something. And what was it? It wasn't that he didn't receive salvation. It wasn't that his disobedience meant he he wasn't regenerated. His disobedience meant he didn't get the land. And I think that Renahan is arguing that the whole Old Covenant, which he argues includes Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic, is mainly focused on the land. And that that does, in a typological way, point forward. But remember, typology is escalated and it is other. It is other, and I think that's a, it's helpful. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the debate about the nature of the Abrahamic covenant is foundationally about these types of topics. Uh, I think the Abrahamic covenant, it's not just a covenant of, here's circumcision, uh, I'll be a God to you and your children. There are also other promises affixed to it. You know, this land, uh, kings, all those things. So when a Pado baptist wants to go, oh, I want to take this and put this in the new covenant. It's almost like arbitrary picking and choosing. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can't just over-spiritualize it and take away everything else that's actually there and pretend it didn't exist. It was just one thing that it, it promised. It promised a whole bunch of things. So it's the Abraham's place in relationship to the old covenant, I think, is crucial. I do think, and I think we'll talk about this, that when the New Testament speaks of the Old Covenant, it is referencing specifically the Mosaic and not the Abrahamic. That's my opinion. I think you guys would say it's, and Renahan would say it's, well, Abraham, Moses, and David. I, I don't think that's the case, but I don't think that makes the Pedobad's claim work any better. I still think the the, Pado, the one covenant of grace, two administrations is the reformed scheme of covenant theology, where in the old it was governed by the mosaic and the new is governed by the new. I I accept that scheme as largely accurate, but I, I still don't see how that, that gets me to pedo baptism in any way. But you guys can So are you saying that the mosaic covenant is a covenant of grace? No. Okay, I maybe I just misheard you then. Okay. I just want to make sure. Oh you said it governed. Okay. Right. Well I, I just think I think it's difficult, you know by the time you get to the New Testament, it just seems difficult to me to untangle uh, those three covenants, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic, because well, because they're operational in the same kingdom. Yeah. And it's the same people. And yeah. they've all lived, they've lived the same heritage where they've, they've all been exiled together and they've all been brought back. And then they've all, you know, they've all had to go through these experiences together. And it, it, it just seems like, it seems like untangling it is then to misunderstand the connectedness of it. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know. It, to me, I think that what, what he said, where it's, it's the same people, it's the same promises, it's the same uh, kingdom, it's the same sanctions. You know, it just, he drives that point home, I think in a really well way. He, he at least presents his case uh, in, in a, in a helpful way that, that makes it seem like, okay, if we're going to say that these three don't, don't, don't all participate in the old covenant, then at what point do you start drawing the lines between them? Sure. So I think Galatians three seventeen, you know, in Galatians three, he's talking about Abrahamic mosaic new covenant, the relationship three seventeen. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 
years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So I think he's clearly making a distinction between the promise that's in Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and the law, the covenant of works, which is in the Mosaic, distinguishing them as two separate covenants, not one, not just this is the old covenant where it's Abraham and Moses together. But Renahan makes that same distinction. He just does it within Abraham. Yeah, no, I hear you. He wants us to see each of the covenants um, distinct. In yeah. fact, I think that's actually a strength of this system. Mm-hmm. Whereas the um, the you know the one covenant of grace under two administrations kind of just jams all the covenants together yeah. as if they're basically all the same thing. Yeah, you can flatten it out. Yep, and I, so I think he actually makes the distinction. I think he's saying that the that the New Testament authors just use the phrase "old covenant." To summarize the, like it's almost as if the because the covenants seem to add on top of one another. Like for example, he he explains how uh, the Mosaic covenant doesn't actually have a federal head. Uh, mm-hmm. So then the king, uh, the, the the Davidic covenant, ends up placing the king of the nation as the federal head over the Mosaic covenant. Right. And so he's showing how while these covenants are distinct, uh, they have been. They've been so intertwined underneath the same kingdom yep. that when the New Testament uses the phrase Old Covenant, it's talking about the summary of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic and how they've been intertwined. It's almost like there's building blocks. You know, yep. It's like each block is its own block, but when they're stacked on top of each other, they create one big block. Yep. And he's saying that when the New Testament, he's arguing at least that when the New Testament uses the phrase Old Covenant, that it's like the whole building, not the individual blocks that make up that building. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, goodness. We, we, we've, uh, I feel like, uh, I feel like of all the, of all the covenants, like the mosaic is the one that gets like the most press, like when it comes to like how to read it and how to, how to execute and stuff. And we haven't really talked about it that much. All right. So just to back up, in the Abrahamic covenant, we have this this distinction that he's making that there's this promise that's gonna happen, like God is gonna fulfill this promise, okay? And then, so he's gonna say that that the um, that the Abrahamic covenant anticipates the Mosaic covenant and also the Davidic covenant, and it anticipates the New covenant, which will be under the one who is promised in Genesis um, chapter twelve. So, all right, so now that's you know, high level what what he sees going on with Abraham, and now let's dive in a little more deeply in into Moses. So the Mosaic Covenant, what kind of covenant is it? Okay, it's a, all right. Well, let's uh, just... I think we would both say covenant works. Uh, there are those who argue covenant of grace, and I think they do it fairly persuasively, to be honest. But I don't buy it. All right, so let's just say we all agree it's a covenant of works. Well, if you, okay, based on the distinction we made at the beginning about what a covenant of works is and what a covenant of grace is, yep. if you're just a reader going in and reading through, like, let's say Exodus, Deuteronomy, you would assume that it's a covenant of works. Yes. Because there are promises and sanctions that are based upon obedience. Yep. And and later in the Bible, when the people don't obey... <laughs> Yeah, the sanctions happen to them. They they act. What what God says is going to happen happens, and, and, and that's that, what the prophets are doing. They're calling back this this threat. Yep. From the pen. So like De- uh, Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty six, curse be anyone who does not conform, uh, to, who who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, 
and all the people shall say amen. So, um, and then later on in in the Old Testament, we have the prophets basically saying, "Look, you you agreed to this. You said you were going to do this. You didn't do it." So, um, we're we're all three in agreement, and it's a covenant of works. So, then I guess the question is: Is it the same covenant of works that we see um, with Adam? I think the answer is no. No. So it isn't capital. The T, the covenant of works, yeah. but it is a covenant of works because it's 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 a different it's a different it's a different blessing and a different curse. So the 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 covenant of works, the Mosaic covenant, is a covenant for life in the land of Canaan, not for eternal life, which is what Adam was reaching for. And that's so important because there are so many people that look back at that Mosaic covenant and say, oh, they had to keep the law for eternal life, or they had to make those sacrifices right. for eternal life. And uh, what what we're saying is like, no, that that opportunity was lost. When Adam fell, He right. the covenant of works was broken. We can't go back into the covenant of works and recuperate it. It, right. it was dead. We're, the tree is not before us. Like right. we're not, we're not, the, 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 the circumstances aren't even the same. So even if we were to fulfill, hypothetically, if someone were to, con, were to fulfill the entire moral law that's written on our hearts, there's still not that positive law there for us to do that final piece that, that Adam was given, which is why it was, it, it, it can't be fulfilled by anyone uh, other than Adam. Now, um, so, the Mosaic Covenant, um, it, it, it's for life in the land of Canaan, and this goes back to typology, right? So um, he's going to see this as the covenant of works um, for the land of Canaan is, is a type of um, working that, that Christ is going to come and do um, for the uh, internal, eternal inheritance. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is where we talked about at the beginning in the first episode, this mystery, I think, in the Mosaic Covenant becomes the mode of revelation, that uh, everything that's happening in some way is pointing forward. Uh, you've got these sacrifices, you've got the priest, you've got the temple or the tabernacle and then the temple, uh, you've got the conquest. I mean, you've got all of it in, in one way or another is this this mode of mystery, which is which is so in that sense, it does preach the gospel. It does preach the gospel beforehand, but the substance of it is not the gospel. The mm -hmm. substance of it, honestly, guys, I mean, when you read it, it's a really sad story. I mean, it's a really sad and hard story to read because there are really brutal things that happen uh, to these people because they disobey God and they are, in a sense, disinherited. And uh, I don't know, It's it, for me, um, the Mosaic Covenant is is uh is hard it's difficult it, you know it, it presents um a really challenging reality to what sin and disobedience um brings about in our lives and, and in the world um but you know of course there's the gracious aspect of the mosaic covenant when you think god has just liberated these people from slavery he is bringing them to mount sinai and, and they are at this point wondering how do i relate to such a holy God who could uh, do all of these plagues and then some to me. And yet God in his grace condescends and gives these people, here's how you can relate to me in a way that is honoring of me and is, is righteous and holy. So there's it's laden with all sorts of grace in this. But as we've been mentioning, it doesn't mean uh, the 
the categories covenant works and covenant of grace are not like hard and fast where if it's covenant of works, it has to only include works. It can't include any grace in it. That's not what the categories are for. The categories are not just getting rid of all grace or getting rid of all works. Uh, it's just the way the covenant is designed to function. So I think we mentioned in the previous episode, this catchy little phrase, do this and live is covenant of works. Live and do this is covenant of grace, where it's just, it's almost the order and the operations of how grace is functioning in it and how works are functioning in it. So I don't think the Mosaic covenant is designed to say, I'm going to give you life. And as I give you life and I promise all of these things, do this because of this. It's more of a, I've done this, now you do this uh, type of covenant. So I think it's a covenant of works. Well, I th- I th- yeah, and I think t- t- I think from a t- typological standpoint, you do see redemption first mm-hmm. and then law. But I think when you get in and you actually do exegesis, you see that there are legitimate sanctions that would what that will come from their disobedience. And yeah. so I, th- I think that's why we wanted to start this whole thing off by saying that any covenant is gracious. Yeah. Uh, any covenant uh, is something that God is giving above and beyond you know what we deserve. And so in that sense, the Mosaic Covenant is gracious, um, and it is more gracious than the, the covenant with Adam. Uh, he, he talks about in the book how um, he says this. He says, if God hadn't given them the sacrificial system, then they would have been exiled way sooner than they were. So in that sense, um, they were given uh, these, these things that they could participate in, these religious institutions that they could participate in to be forgiven. Now, granted, the question becomes, is that forgiveness earthly forgiveness or is that forgiveness heavenly forgiveness? And I think that Renahan argues that it is only earthly forgiveness, mm-hmm. that, that, that the Mosaic Covenant through those sacrifices is uh, in one sense making atonement for their sins so that they can remain in the mm-hmm. land, yeah. but that it's actually not take, making atonement for anyone's sins as they stand before the eternal throne of God. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, all right, now the relationship between the covenant uh, and the king. So uh, on page 119 in the book, uh, he, he says, uh, In other nations, the king creates the law. The king is the law. In Israel, the king is created by the law. The king must keep the law. Um, God is king in Israel. His law controls the kingship. So, um, And then once we get into uh, the, the Davidic covenant, we're going to see even more highlighted the relationship between um, what the king does, and then where the, the the kingdom goes, and what happens with the kingdom. So, somebody want to sketch well, a little introduction to the Davidic covenant, or? Well, I, I just think that at this point, we're like this is where we're seeing biblical theology, you know, you know, pl- come come out because we're now we're, we're we're really starting to put the pieces together for what the whole Bible is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got you got the Psalms, you got the uh, historical narratives, um, you've got. Um, the uh, the prophets that are engaging with the kings and and by God establishing this um, this covenant head or this uh, federal head of the Mosaic covenant through uh, David and his line, uh, it, it's starting to help us make sense of the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. That now when God is talking about His anointed one mm-hmm. or this this quote unquote Messiah figure, uh, that this person is a federal head. Um, just like Adam was, just like Noah was, and just like Abraham was. And so I know I didn't, I didn't explain the Davidic covenant, but I think just to take a pause there and see how this is helping us with our biblical theologies, helping us make mm-hmm. sense of what the whole Bible is doing. 
Yeah, and so on 131, um, you know, just to expand a little bit more on what you said about the federal, the Davidic king being the federal head of the Mosaic Covenant, he says, The Davidic Covenant established the heirs of David as the representatives or federal heads of the kingdom. They are not just to lead the people as an example of righteousness and law-keeping. They are to represent the people in their law-keeping. This is really important. This means that if the king is righteous, the people are blessed. If the king is wicked, the people are cursed. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. This is the consistent testimony of the historical record of kings and chronicles. Righteous kings brought blessing on the land. Wicked kings brought curses on the land. So, um, whereas Moses was only a mediator, now you have the Davidic king in the role of federal head. So, um and again, I think the, the two-level typology thing is really big with the Davidic covenant. Um, you see that it seems like God is making this promise to David's son. And you almost think Solomon maybe is the guy. You know, you're almost thinking like, okay, he's going to have a king on his throne uh, with his people. But then pretty quickly in First Kings, you get a sense that, oh, wow, uh, Solomon's actually a terrible person. <laughs> and, and like point by point. He does every single thing that a king is not supposed to do, that God had told the kings not to do. And so we need that two-level typology where we realize that the promise that God made to David was actually real for his descendants, that he would have, uh, it would be his lineage that would be the kings of Israel. But there had to be some greater and other king who would be coming to, uh, to be a greater ruler who we would, who, who we would need and look to yep. in a new covenant. So this brings us to chapter 9. Uh, the Messiah of the Old Covenant. So so Renahan says the purpose of the Old Covenant was to produce the New Covenant because the purpose of the Old Covenant was to provide the Messiah, the Christ, the mediator of the New Covenant. And then he talks about, you know, the, the progress of the covenants from Abraham to Moses to David and, and the typology that we see there. So like the land of Canaan is a shadow of the greater land. Sacrificial system is a shadow of a greater sacrifice. The priestly lineage was a shadow of the great high priest. Um, the victories of David um, were a shadow of David's greater son. Um, the the numerous physical tribes of Abraham were a shadow of the transnational people of God. Um, so we see this hope. There's this, and then there's been this hope right since Genesis three fifteen. There's just been this hope of this coming one. And when we see you know all throughout the Old Testament, who is it going to be? Who is it going to be? So there's this this messianic hope. Um, and then you know. We, you see this in in uh, in Psalm one and Psalm two, uh, so that that the anointed one is going to be uh, the king, the anointed one of um, of Israel. So, um, I guess I don't know. There's a few things that maybe we could. Do y'all have something right now that you want to talk about when it comes to the Messiah and the Old Covenant? Or I'm good. Yeah, the only thing I would say is I, I think. You know, if you're reading the Bible, uh, you know, you've you've tracked along through these covenants. So much of it happens in the Pentateuch, and then all of a sudden you've just got all this Bible left, and you're thinking, what is all this doing here? Okay, we've got the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then Jesus doesn't show up until Matthew, you know, and I think that so much of what the Bible is doing is creating a sense of longing, creating a sense of desperation, creating a sense of, of forward-lookingness. To, to, it's almost like Israel themselves have to come to this realization that the promises that God has made aren't actually earthly promises, that yeah. that what they're longing for isn't coming to pass. And so it creates that anticipation. And I think that's one of the reasons that we do, I think, as Baptists, 
want to highlight the distinctiveness of the new covenant that when the new comes like something is actually changing (laughs) something different is arriving and i know we've we've already talked about how there's going to be nuance in what that is and there's going to be different different opinions on what that looks like but i think all of us need (laughs) to have some category where when jesus arrives it is a refreshment it is good news it is it is god coming to save his people and so uh, i think that um so much of the prophets and and even the psalms are are helping us you know turn our hearts forward to look forward to god uh being faithful with his with his messiah yeah and that that was really like the last thing i wanted to say is what renahan says on 144 he says what god had in store for them that is israel um and the world was far better than they could have imagined. They failed to realize just how much the new covenant would not be like the old covenant and uh, why that was such a blessed reality. Like, I mean, that's so that like sets the stage for the gospels. Like, so that's where like we're left pretty much is the longing for this coming Messiah. And, you know, it just does not appear to be coming. And then Jesus first onto the scene. And I guess that's where we will pick up our next episode. That sounds good to me. So, guys, you've been listening, and uh, we hope you enjoyed it. I think this has been a good little introduction to the Kingdom of Israel. We had some fun little debate. And tune into the next episode as well. Part four, we'll be talking about the Kingdom of Christ, uh, what that looks like for the new covenant and all that it entails. I think we also talk about the covenant of redemption. So, you covenant redemption junkies, tune in to part four. Anyway, you've been listening to the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you for tuning in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.